Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to today's episode of the Inform Performance podcast. On today's show, I have high performance manager at West's Tiger Rugby League, Andrew Gray. Andrew is rarely in the limelight, but he's incredibly knowledgeable and experienced, both as a high performance manager, to which we'll discuss staff development at depth, but also as a thought leader in the GPS space as the founder of Athletic Data Innovations, or ADI. So we'll also be discussing GPS and his journey applying this to generate meaningful insights. Informed Performance is proudly sponsored by industry leader Vald Performance, makers of the Forstex system. Forstex are the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force plate system to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. With its incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click. So this will help you to get quick and accurate insights on all your athletes. For more information about Forstex or the Vald range, head over to valdperformance.com. Right, let's get into today's episode with me, Andy McDonald, and today's guest, Andrew Gray. A few weeks ago, I connected with Matt Clark from I Measure You, and in conversation, he urged me to meet but also to get Andrew Gray on the show with the highest of recommendations. So following on from a phone call last week, I would like to welcome Andrew Gray to the Informed Performance Podcast. Andrew, it's great to have you on, mate. How are you? I'm um, well, thanks, Andy. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Pleasure. It's good to, uh, it's good to get you on for a, a recorded conversation this time. Um, we've got a couple of sort of larger topics that we're going to cover today, but just to create some context, could you first tell the listeners about uh, your background and your career bringing us all the way up until the the current day? Sure. So uh, I studied physiotherapy at Sydney Uni in 1992. I uh, began work as a physio at a local private practice in southern Sydney here in Australia. Uh, started work straight after I completed my degree and was really lucky, I guess, to have two of the best physiotherapists in Sydney at the time, Graham Van Ken and Jenny Aiken, as mentors. So uh, a uh, big stroke of luck there. Around so probably 1998, a few years later, Graham's career was heading in a different direction. Uh, handed me the opportunity to purchase his share of the practice, uh, so I jumped at that. Uh, another stroke of luck, um, you know, which is a big theme here, very important in a in a long career, I believe. And so later that same year, in 1998, two teams in the National Rugby League competition were merging to form the St George Laura Dragons. Uh, two feeder teams there, uh, St. George Dragons, were a club with a really long and proud history. They merged with the Illawarra Steelers, who were a young club, but had a really large feeder area in the south coast of New South Wales in Rugby League Heartland. And they were packed with promising junior players. So one club had the money, and the other club had all the players. So it was a, it was a pretty good merger. Um, they were seeking to bring together new medical staff. Uh, I was approached by Dr. Martin Raftery, who was just a, a colleague at that time, a local doctor uh, I'd worked with. He was already at the St. George Dragons then. He's uh, presently moved on to be the IRB Chief Medical Officer uh, on his way through, worked with the Wallabies, uh, another great mentor and another stroke of luck there. And I was asked to fill the role of physiotherapist and rehab coach at that time. Um between the years of, say, 99, 2008, my role continually changed, including sports science, as I guess, as it evolved or developed in Australian sport uh, on this side of the world, and overall into program management. In around 2009, I was still at the club. Ten years later, 
uh, rugby league's most, I guess, revered coach, Wayne Bennett, came to the Dragons from the Brisbane Broncos. I had one year to run on my contract at that time, and Wayne asked me if I was happy to perform only the physiotherapy role, the way he put it, as he was bringing Jeremy Hickmans with him, who was his high-performance manager from the Broncos. Um, so I commenced a much simplified role in 2009, and looking back now, it was Wayne that really created the space for me to expand the other part of my career uh, and my interest in monitoring movement. Wayne left the Dragons end of 2011 after three really successful seasons, including winning the club's maiden premiership, which was a great ride. I stayed at the club for another three years as the performance director, uh, a period that didn't return much success on the field with plenty of salary cap pressures and issues, but provided me an opportunity to produce some really strong performance systems throughout the club and junior development systems as well, uh, which probably paved the way for the next part of my career. So I guess looking for a new challenge, at the end of 2014, I left the Dragons and started work at the Cronulla Sharks, another NRL club, um, as physical performance manager. They just emerged from the suspensions involved in the Asada scandal down in this part of the world. Uh, club was uh, at the bottom of the table, and I was firmly focused on sort of playing my part in the club's maiden premiership because it was such a ride at the Dragons. Uh, it was a feat that we achieved in my second year at 2016, uh, which was a fantastic time. After enjoying five years at the Sharks, I left the club at the end of 2019 in search of a new challenge. And this season, I've headed to the West Tigers, yet another NRL club. So totaling 22 years in the same competition for three clubs. Um but have sort of been lucky enough to uh, have involvement with a bunch of other clubs, uh, I guess, as a consultant. So, uh, you know, rather than I've been quite isolated in one competition, but have been able to be involved in a bunch of other competitions and other football codes around the world, which has uh, probably uh, kept me interested. Obviously, you know, the, the, your more, I guess your more recent kind of consultancy work has give you, given you some decent whip. Has it, you know, I'm just curious, has it been a, a conscious decision to um, to try and go deeper and stay with rugby or is it just kind of how life's panned out that, you know, you've ended up um, staying in the same code? I've just enjoyed it so much, to be honest, Andy. Um, I've probably, you know, over the, over the two decades, uh, I had opportunities to move into rugby, move into football, move into sports within America, uh, move out of sport into into business and just the NRL keeps bringing me back. Um, I love the team environment. I love the challenge. I love the people involved in rugby league. Um, I love the fact that there's a game every week. So now it's probably more that I couldn't bring myself to leave. Yeah. Were you a sportsman yourself? Or was uh, was rugby league your sport? You know, previously or. Um, I was a generalist. It's probably a kind way to say it. I played a lot of sports <laughs> as a as a young guy. Uh, uh, more of an endurance athlete, more of a paddler. Um, love ocean paddling. Love competing in things that go for hours. Uh, I love the mental challenges of that. Was never big enough, strong enough, fast enough, or skillful enough to be a good rugby league player. Very honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> you've uh, you've gone from wearing a, a clinical hat to wearing now a broader performance sort of managerial hat if we call it that um you know people climb up to your role and level from a number of different professional routes and uh, sort of technical roles one of the things i'd like to know is what you know what skills do you think um formally working as a physio or clinician you've been able to carry forwards and upwards into your high performance manager role as it is in your case 
Uh, it's a great question. I can probably only speak about my specific experiences. And, you know, for me, physio, what I uh, found rewarding about being a physio straight out of university was the fact that I got to help people, the fact that I got to be creative, and the fact that I got to solve problems. And Graham Van Ken really pushed me down that path. My first physio mentor is that he was a problem solver. He ended up seeing the patients that uh, that no one else could fix. And that's that's probably was my first experience of being a private clinician. And if I look back now, uh, what I find most rewarding about a high-performance manager role at a club is helping people, helping people uh, reach their potential, you know, achieve long, rewarding careers, either as players or staff. And really, it's about creating the environment for that to occur. So, uh, yeah, that, that's been my journey. And as a high-performance manager, and of course, uh, you know, it's a leadership role, how do you go about approaching developing the staff under you or you know or guiding them in their careers um, as they report to you um so you know i've seen a lot of changes over 20 years in in pro sport in australia uh you know my earliest experiences the physio stayed in the treatment room the strength coach lived in the gym the fitness coach lived on the field they each did their own thing and uh, maybe didn't get along, maybe didn't speak to each other that much, maybe didn't plan collaboratively. And um, being the physio, I probably saw all of the faults in that because I was cleaning up the mess of all the injuries that we had early on. So from a very early time in part of my career, integration between departments within performance staff and coaching staff has been a huge focus. And multi-skilled staff is what I try to steer towards. I try to steer towards a multi-skilled department that's really integrated because, uh, A, I think it brings the best results, and, B, I think it, pr- it provides somebody an opportunity for a long, rewarding career in pro sport. Uh, if you're too narrow and too deep at too early an age, then the problems that you can solve are too few. Do you think that, because um, there's always this kind of, um, I guess, spectrum where you've got, like, like you said, maybe a younger, um, deeper, perhaps, um, specialist on one end of the spectrum, and then on the other end, you've got the more multi-skilled generalist. Do you think that you can kind of walk a fine line in the middle and compromise where you're, you've gone deep enough and you've got a deep understanding on uh, certain topics but then you've also been able to multi-skill and get a, at least an enhanced understanding of the you know the other cogs in the machine yeah i think there's definitely a balance there um i mean too far in either direction uh i think you get into trouble if you're worrying too much about other people's jobs if you're worrying too much about uh, uh, learning everything else in high performance roles at a young age then you're probably not putting enough energy into actually doing your job correctly but uh, if you are only focused on your job, then you know you're also selling your department short and your athletes short. So yes, there's a balance, and uh, I guess teaching young staff that balance is something that I find increasingly my role. Provide them the opportunities to develop in other areas, but obviously to remember what their core role is, because no one else is going to do that do it for them. And uh, you know we're we're really there to help help the athletes uh, develop optimally. So they get the longest possible career and we're there to, to put a team on the field every week who can do the job uh, 
So yeah, there's a there's a balance, uh, and achieving that balance, you know, I've made some mistakes there over the time, and achieving that balance is the ultimate goal, I think, of of high performance managers. When you're kind of working with the staff that report to you, you know, that say that's a strength coach or a physio or a sports scientist, um, you know, you, I'm sure you find yourself in a position where you probably, uh, you know, partly or at least you're a mentor to them as well. So, I guess what's the process as it concerns you in terms of you've got somebody who's from a single discipline how do you identify or structure maybe which other disciplines they should get exposure to and knowledge on and and maybe in what order how do you kind of not package it but how do you strategize it with them or um, for them uh, another great question Andy so I think that's a that's a balance again between um communication, understanding where they want to go, um, probably with a little bit of help for me, understanding their personality type and, you know, I'll have an opinion on where I think that they should go. So there's a collaboration there. What is it they want to do on top of their current role? And then practically, what does our team and our department need? You know, worked with uh, probably uh, might be eight or nine head coaches over the last 22 years countless staff in different roles and every environment is different every group of people when they when they come together creates a different environment um, different strengths and weaknesses every team environment is different every training environment is different so that changes all of the time so I guess it's a balance between what they want and what the team needs that's probably where the decision comes from and that's just through honest open communication yeah yeah and i guess because it can vary can't it because what you don't want to do as well is tick box and say you know go and spend x amount of time or go and study these courses on this and then you can move on to this there's not really a a tick boxing curriculum i don't think because all of these different specialities are kind of interrelated at the same time so um, like things aren't siloed or shouldn't be siloed anymore i guess you can't also silo the educational or career development process either no completely agree I don't think we felt the the full extent of COVID yet as a as an industry in sport and as backroom staffing structures uh, are currently sort of situated. Do you think teams are going to be looking at more multi skilled and better generalists moving forwards as you know as perhaps budgets are cut or um, team staffs are a little bit leaner? Yeah, I do. I think we're coming into a really interesting time. Uh, you know, if I look across my time in the last 20 years and I guess the rise of high performance managers in the last 10 to 15 and uh, younger staff or less experienced staff becoming uh, with, with a narrower focus from a, from a younger age, I do think we're coming into a time now where it's, it's inevitable. We don't know how COVID's going to pan out, but it's inevitable that sports are going to need to tighten their belts, uh, tighten their belts with what they pay players federations give to clubs and in turn what clubs spend on football departments or athletic departments and staff so uh, i guess i see one of two things possibly happening i see that you know either senior high performance the the senior high performance managers may be there may be an increase in consultancy roles there where off-site consultancy roles to mentor younger staff moving into those roles is one possibility. The other possibility is that the more multi-skilled will find more opportunities and 
you know, somebody with uh, a narrower focus um, may get left out. I'm not too sure how that will sort of pan out, but uh, it's definitely going to be an interesting time in the next 12, 18 months. It's hard as well, isn't it? Because uh, I guess in terms of the service that an entire backroom service provides for a team and, and the players themselves, you can't really do less or I, or I doubt we can do less you know, and offer less in the future if that situation evolves. So I feel like, um, you know, our, you know, I just wonder whether coaches, clinicians are going to be running around doing more, working longer days perhaps. I mean, who knows? But I do wonder where where does the compromise hit in terms of like work output because I, I don't think teams are going to be able to turn around to players and say, well, we can't do that anymore necessarily. Oh, I agree. And, you know, analytics and tech keep advancing. They uh, provide insights, but they must be managed by somebody. Somebody has to make that happen. Uh, you know, in our specific environment at the Tigers in the NRL during this the post-COVID lockdown, we resumed in May. We resumed competition at the very beginning of June. Uh, we're now approaching the end of our season. This year we've had an experienced strength coach whose focus has been strength and conditioning He's strapping players daily. He's setting up the sheds each weekend. We've had a younger strength and conditioning coach coming to us from a boxing background, uh, more of a speed and agility specialist, Aaron Scully, who I'm having him, he's massaging two to three hours a week in recovery because we have a set number of staff that we're allowed to have inside our bubble, (laughs) the NRL bubble, so to speak, um, and budget cuts on the number of staff that we're allowed to have, have in our sports science and innovations coordinator straps ankles our uh, physios are massaging and a covering recovery session so being multi-skilled is great but there are i think there are a lot of people in sport at the moment that are being asked to do things outside of their role or not outside of their role on top of their role because their core role still needs to be uh, managed by somebody you know we've seen a real high injury rate in the nrl this season um, there's multiple factors that have led to that but uh, staff being spread too thinly, I think, is is one of many of those factors. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. But and in an ideal world, our, and we'll come on to technology as a bigger topic um, shortly, but all of our different sort of um, data sets and tools that we use um, need to be kept as simple as, as they can, providing they're answering the questions that we want. Um, but I think probably as tech has evolved and has as kind of sports science and and data analytics has evolved. We can run the risk sometimes of collecting lots of information that we're not necessarily using or able to um, express and and do something with in terms of relaying it onto the relevant parties like coaches. Um, do you think people are going to you know wary of what could be coming um, in terms of staffing structures and systems? Do you think people are going to start to simplify down um, what are the most essential parts of their programs or their um, their their methodologies. Yeah, I do, and I think that tech companies are probably going to have to manoeuvre as well to provide more of a service. So, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, technology, you know, produces data. Data takes some, uh, and then the, the experienced users always want to extract the raw data and do things with them to stay ahead of the game and and get an advantage. You know, that's time consuming. Um, uh, the innovation and creativity around that is really, really rewarding. That's where I've spent a lot of my time in the in the last uh, period as well. 
but I do think going forward with less money around, uh, potentially less staff, that tech companies are going to need to provide a service that just gives people answers, um, which is obviously the end point of a lot of analytics processes. But the way that sport evolves is, you know, being full of innovators that uh, go and help the tech companies decide where they need to head. Uh, the COVID situation is also going to have an effect on that, where I don't think there's going to be as many times, as many as many teams rather, with the time and human resources to do those things for tech companies. So yet another process is going to be affected by what we're all going through. You know, assuming that some people are going to. Um scale down some of the details or the you know the rabbit holes that they maybe go down from a technical standpoint with these systems i'm curious as a high performance manager how do you kind of review um systems do you have a kind of a specific thought process or uh, a way of auditing and evaluating the tools that you have and whether they're effective or not yeah i do and i think there's i think there's three key points there is that you know any new tech it's really it's got to accurately measure what it sets out to measure um, not all new tech, uh, obviously, is as accurate as we would like, but I think the first goal there is for us to get an understanding of where the inaccuracies lie, what they're due to, and to get some sort of confidence um, around those numbers. That's the first step is accuracy. And the next one is that it's really it's got to tangibly add value to the high-performing environment. So it's actually got to... Uh, you know, provide your staff with an opportunity to investigate and innovate, and it's really got to change something that benefits the high-performance environment and your players and staff. So it's got to be accurate and it's got to actually work. And the next thing, it's got to fit the resourcing model, and I think that's where the biggest squeeze is going to come. It's got to fit the resourcing model from a cost and personnel perspective. Um, you know, rugby league... Uh, is not definitely not a sport in Australia where there's a, a lot of money to spend on these things. So clubs really need to be innovative with the way that they get tech into an environment. And a lot of times that can be assisting the tech company to understand how they fit into the environment. Um, uh, so when there's not a, lot of, not a lot of money involved in buying tech at a lot of clubs, especially the clubs that I've been at for the last 20 years, you do need to be really selective. And that's probably how that process has evolved for us so you're you're more of a collaborator than just a customer really correct correct an early adopter collaborator um and then really trying to pick the tech that fills the gaps that we have in our understanding we've um we've kind of quite organically moved into um technology which was going to be the the second big rock that i wanted to hit with you in today's conversation and I'm guilty of asking a lot of the guests that I've had on about technology, but I think with you, it's essential that I discuss it because you've got um, some pretty deep roots in in application of tech in sport and, of course, some expertise on GPS systems um, with your own company. Just to kind of set the scene on that, can you talk through your story specifically as it pertains to your current interests um, and and ADI? Um, Yeah, it's been a a great uh, journey with ADI. So probably around 15 years ago, uh, being an early adopter, um, genetically an early adopter, I guess, GPS technology landed in the NRL, uh, immediately hooked for what I thought was possible, but then also as quickly frustrated, I guess, by the superficiality of the of the current metrics. You know, we're looking at total distance and average speed and trying to use that to explain what was happening on a rugby league, rugby league field. Um, 
So my immediate interest was in measuring as much of the movement spectrum as possible, uh, I guess akin to driving along uh, in a car at high speed and wanting to be able to see out all of the windows rather than just one. Um, my thought processes initially were, you know, if I could focus on capturing changes of velocity, I might be able to measure mechanical work and get a better understanding of the game demands and improve my team's preparation. That's where it was uh, focused. And additionally, I guess if I could use the inertial sensor to capture the foot strike or the collision and integrate these findings with the GPS sensor, then I'd have a powerful way of advancing the understanding, I guess, of the return to play process. Um, so as a result, I uh, began extracting raw data from the devices straight away and built my own metric templates to see what I could measure. Uh, this occurred, you know, around about at a time I uh, mentioned when uh, Wayne Bennett came to the Dragons, and I found myself with a lot of spare time on my hand. My on my hands, my role had simplified somewhat. Um, and you know, I guess what's important to re remember here is that measuring a change of position gives us velocity, and measuring that rate of change of velocity gives us acceleration. So velocity is a a vector quantity, it's got both magnitude and direction. So by definition, a change in either the magnitude or the direction of velocity results in an acceleration. However, we still only seem to be considering acceleration as a change in speed when we analyze GPS data, whereas much of the hard work done on a football pitch results from changes of trajectory, not only changes in speed. So that was really, you know, ADI was probably born from the curiosity I had around that. And it seems that I guess some of the world's largest football teams pretty quickly had a similar vision and they started to get on board. I started to get phone calls from, I guess, Chelsea Football Club first. Uh, I don't know if many listeners would remember Nick Broad now, but Nick Broad, uh, somebody at Chelsea Football Club back around 2007, 8 and 9, was a real sports science pioneer. Uh, early, the first customer, for ADI's first customer, Nick, Nick really drove uh, insight and drove me hard to build the program. And it's been people like Nick that uh, have really, I guess, you know, uh, guided ADI over the last 10 to 15 years. You know, Nick moved on to Paris Saint-Germain uh, after a success at Chelsea uh, with Carlo Ancelotti and then really sadly passed in a car accident suddenly. And uh, Nick's everything Nick was working on at that time obviously stopped. Uh, I had phone calls from Paris Saint-Germain at that time saying, what were you and Nick doing? What, uh, what are we going to, how are we going to do and how are we going to move forward? And I guess that event uh, really motivated me to make sure that uh, I can potentially leave something behind uh, and all of my work does create some change. And that's been probably a huge motivation to keep ADI going. And what's the kind of... Um I guess what's the process or what's the product? You know, if um, uh, you know, let's say a, an EPL, another EPL team picks up the phone and asks for some help, do they typically have the hardware and software already, and you're problem solving, or or do they come to you for you know hardware suggestions and then you know the integration of your software? How does it all kind of get fitted together for them? Uh, yeah, well, I'm pretty lazy as a businessman. ADI is was there to solve my problems and it's never been something that I wanted to drive as a business. It's just happened organically as uh, users, you know, curious users at pro teams around the world want more 
from technology. So it's inevitably been a word of mouth situation where a club has heard of somebody else using it, has really just reached out and said, hey, uh, we've got a problem that we want to solve and we want to solve it quickly. Can you help? Um, that's been the way it, it's happened. ADI uh, as a platform, you know, ingests multiple GPS devices, optical tracking devices, inertial sensors, uh, harmonizes the sensors, the, the original, the, the traces rather, harmonizes the traces, calibrates the output, applies a bunch of algorithms, and I think gives uh, metrics to a user that are more about mechanical work. You know, they more accurately measure the movement of their sport and integrate between sensors. So it really just provides uh, users with an answer, uh, sorry, a bunch of answers, a bunch of numbers, and then their creativity can take off with what they do with that. Uh, it doesn't provide a visualization platform or anything. It never has. Uh, a lot of users do that themselves in, in BI tools or in, still in Excel. So it's an, it's an agile problem-solving platform, I guess, is the best way to put it. Would I be right to assume that it's almost kind of custom built to what that person needs rather than it's being, you know, rather than an off the shelf style of software? Yeah, it'd be com- completely correct. They're the same developer from day one, uh, and its development really has been crowdsourced. <laughs> its development has been driven by users who want want a quick answer uh, they want more so yeah it's a real it's a i guess a bespoke platform that changes to the needs of each client how much you know obviously your role is going to be um all-encompassing at the tigers how much time do you kind of have to you know allocate to be able to um problem solve and uh, communicate with teams on the adi side of things versus your you know your bread and butter role at the tigers I mean, early on, it was quite extensive when things were quite manual. But now, I mean, the, a lot of the problems that people are trying to solve are the exact same problems that I've either solved in the past or am trying to solve now or didn't know existed. So it's really just an extension of my current role. Communicating with a software developer has become really efficient. I knew nothing about software 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but no, conversations similar to exactly that we're having now is when the problems get understood and then uh, I'm not writing the code. I'm just organizing somebody to do that. So I'm really a middleman between the software developer and the club with a problem and the device manufacturer. It's probably the way that it's evolved. And, you know, rather than a lot of people in my roles, uh, you know, do PhDs, uh, operate other businesses, those sorts of things. I guess this has been my development that occurred accidentally 15 years ago and it's probably been the thing that I think about in the car driving to and from uh, my, my day job and it's been the thing that's probably kept me interested in working in the same sport for such a long time because I've been it's given me the opportunity to to build some amazing friendships with people around the world in other football codes uh, which is really the most rewarding part of the whole process. Do you find that when you're able to work with other sports, especially in your position, you you're able to create kind of almost clearer frameworks in your own mind? Because I guess when you've worked in one sport for a long time, maybe there's a fine line between framework and familiarity. Do you find that being able to go into other sports has allowed you to kind of um, see what is familiar in your environment in a new kind of context? Yeah, completely. Andy, and you know, uh training somebody to move better is universal 
you know, um, seeing what sports with endless pools of money spend their money on helps me understand what I should be spending my club's money on <laughs> most effectively. Yeah. Um, being in and out of other sports and improving processes has been an excellent educational process. Uh, but, you know, football clubs, uh, when it really boils down to it, football clubs are football clubs and footballers are footballers and improving them and helping them have long careers, there are a lot of things that are consistent regardless of sport or environment. Without, mean to, without meaning to shuffle around the, you know, the points or the things we're talking about, you mentioned just a minute ago um, that you don't actually do the coding necessarily yourself. Um, going full circle on what we were talking about earlier in, in terms of people going more um, multi-skilled and generalist, especially moving forwards, do you, do you see coding as being a new skill set or um, ability that you might look for in staff or expect to see teams requiring in, in you know, different performance practitioners? Yeah, well, it's, it's happening now. You know, 50, um, I was a self-taught Excel <laughs> user. I wouldn't say a skilled user, just an Excel user. Figured that out myself a long time ago. Um, and, you know, back then... That was everything. Excel was everything when we started putting these things together. But as devices become more sensitive, data sets become larger, Excel quickly grinds to a halt. So uh, going back a decade ago, larger clubs would build their own database, um, employ somebody else to build that database, uh, which is really expensive, time-consuming, and doesn't provide that much flexibility. Then data scientists started to pop up. And, you know, most recently, uh, a few of the sports that I'm actually dealing with at the moment, having conversations, all have data scientists, code in Python, they code in R, uh, they can quickly manage huge data sets, uh, machine learning models uh, are coming to the forefront, which uh, have really made me rethink the way that I build my algorithms. My algorithms have been old school, so to speak, you know, understanding the movement from a movement practitioner's standpoint getting my head around the data and understanding how to build an algorithm that catches those movements. Whereas these days, a data scientist in a project that I'm actually working on with uh, Australian Defence can build a supervised machine learning framework where we can teach the model what was occurring at that time and the model decides how to build that algorithm. Oh, that's amazing. And there's people within teams these days that can that are doing those things. So, yeah, and that's an area of growth for my existing sports scientist and innovation coordinator is to go and to get some skills there because I do think it will almost become a necessity because the data and tech aren't going away. Um, the quantified athlete, you know, is something that's going to continue to, to grow and there's going to be more and more data and we're going to need to find better ways to deal with it and clubs on smaller budgets are going to have to learn to do it themselves. So I think it's it's inevitable. Um, I'm, I'm not about to jump in and learn how to use those things. There's people that are much, much better than me at doing that. But uh, having an understanding of the way that movement occurs is essential. So uh, to answer your question, I think it definitely is an area that I think will find more prevalent in pro sport how do you kind of um how does that get integrated with sports science because i think sports science is one of the more interesting um you know individual roles in teams in terms of how it changes over time and and how it looks in different countries how you know how where do you see sports scientists being most effective moving forwards 
um, amongst the technology, but also kind of responsibilities that we're more familiar with them doing now? Uh, well, another, you know, another collision that I've probably witnessed slowly occurring over the last decade is that, uh, you know, statistical analysis or event analysis that coaches would, or coaches or managers will spend a lot of their time doing the events of a game, the statistics of a game that explain tactically what has occurred. Um, you know, that started with video analysis back in the day and has grown to management of those stats. And that's still where a lot of coaches sit with athletes to review and preview performance. Then on the other side, GPS devices landed, inertial sensors landed. Uh, you know, we're using force plates. We're using linear position transducers. We're using all these things to, to measure performance, uh, to, you know, improve performance, reduce injury risk, and optimize rehabilitation. That's really, for me, the three reasons why we use those things. Now, I guess looking forward, where that really needs to go is that those two, street, those two streets need to intersect, and that's starting to occur. You know, I guess my dream is that a coach will sit in a post-match review session looking at video uh, that is tightly coupled with physical data, tightly coupled with GPS metrics, inertial metrics. We're talking about something that's occurred in the game that's been successful and we're showing the supporting physical data to explain that. We're showing an event that occurs in a game that's been unsuccessful, and we're showing the physical data to support that. Because really, the, the athletes these days, uh, younger athletes now are engaged in their data and the analysis of that and the tech, and they really, you know, 15 years ago, it was hard to get someone to put a GPS device on for a match. These days, Everybody wears a device all of the time. They're happy to wear any device, I find, and we're getting heart rate from matches as well. And we're going through a process at the Tigers uh, that we're basically trying to join those two roads together. And we're using the event data from matches to provide splits for the physical data so that we can actually look at the physical data from the game in a tactical context, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. And I get, you know, critically as well, I don't, I don't think it matters what code you play. If you're playing a field or court-based, um, you know, predominantly ball-based sport, you don't spend much time on the ball ever compared to away from the ball. So, you know, I guess uh, the more streamlined that software and, and display of it is, the easier it is to get buy-in from a te technical, tactical coach on the physical metrics and the physical demands of the game um, when you can show it to them rather than just explain it to them or try and stress that point to them. That's right, because I see there's so much scope for change in that area. That's a real low-hanging fruit for me is to have players see that data, how it affects their performance. Really, we use that tech to create change. I think there's a, a, an area there we can create change quickly. This is obviously a bit of a random question, but um, given your kind of expertise and, and now your consultancy in that space, is there like a sort of FAQ question or a common uh, misconception or problem that you repetitively find yourself answering you obviously don't say teams uh, or people but is there is there kind of um, questions or corrections that you find yourself making a lot to people uh, no not no, not so much corrections as much as because uh, you know like I said every environment is so different but common needs of practitioners is to be able to quickly um, easily and efficiently uh, quantify training 
understand training so that they can communicate with a coach effectively and efficiently and easily communicate with a coach in a common language to affect the management of the athlete. That's really what everybody is trying to do. I want to better understand what's um, what's occurring in competition or in training. I want to be able to communicate that to my coach in a language that everybody understands so that we can improve the way we're looking after our athletes. That's uh, mm-hmm. that's universal. Yeah. Do you teach courses? I'm just curious. Do you have you ever thought if you don't have you ever thought about teaching courses um, on this kind of theme? No, I haven't because I guess uh, there hasn't been the time. Um, but um, yeah. and I find uh, I really enjoy the one-on-one mentoring situation, which I guess goes back to my physio roots. Is really about helping people one-on-one achieve what they want to achieve. So uh, yeah, maybe one day. Who knows what's around the corner, Andy? I'm um, I'm mindful of time, and um, one of, one of the things I'd love to know, kind of bring in the topics um, current is, you know, given what's going on with COVID and uh, planning ahead for you know the rest of the seasonal patterns in sport, is there anything you're you know reading or looking at that you think is going to help you in the future? You know, maybe not necessarily um, from the sport science and performance world, but is there anything that you're 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 curious or interested in that you think might help you as this kind of year or at least current period sort of unfolds for us uh yeah the covid period was really interesting you know we'd basically come out of uh two six-week blocks of pre-season uh we had a really good pre-season at the tigers this year huge training loads great compliance uh low injury rates and really good improvements uh we played a couple of matches and then everything was shut down the players went into a six-week period uh where they were you know essentially left to their own devices we we kind of broke that up into three two-week blocks uh we let everybody obviously it was such a shock when everything occurred uh that we just let the dust settle for a couple of weeks we had a middle two-week period where we uh our staff all understood what was going to happen in the immediate time where they stood with the club financially and all those sorts of things and uh you know i've got to say that the staff at the tigers at that point were really just interested in finding a way that they could continue to help the players um, we used a, an online strength and conditioning platform to communicate with our players about what they needed to do. We broke up all of our equipment into garages at home and they started lifting weights. And, you know, having had two big preseason periods, a slight freshen up in a two-week break, we saw some amazing results. Guys continued to get stronger in isolation, which really surprised us. But lends to lends you know yourself to the question is well how can we actually use that to our advantage going forward we then sent remote running programs to everybody um which you know once again great group really compliant group and enthusiastic and looking to get better they actually ran really hard and ran really well uh, during the isolation period before we came back together and you know there's been huge injury rates this year in the nrl that are it's gathering a little bit of press down here we've actually uh, fared pretty well this year and I think a lot of that has got to do with the work that the boys did in isolation which allowed us to uh, not take as hard an approach as we may needed to have done if they hadn't worked during isolation when we came back together. So going forward it's got us thinking about the next off-season and the next pre-season. We don't know what that's going to look like yet. The league hasn't determined uh, what's going to happen to squad size when we're starting, when the season starts next year. But that's all going to come pretty quickly, and that's something that we're communicating 
intently about at the moment is how we can take what we learned during the COVID lockdown period and use it going forward to our advantage. And I guess, you know, there is a lack of sport going on in, at the moment in the world, but there's so much sporting news in terms of just how different leagues and teams are responding and how they're problem solving. So I guess, you know, even if you're not able to necessarily um, predict from within your own league, you can look around and see what what might be coming or how other teams are problem solving in their in their situations. Yeah, completely agree. It's a really interesting time and, uh, uh, you know, posing a lot of challenges that haven't haven't occurred before obviously so uh there's really going to be some great learning from a professional standpoint that comes out of this period and where's the best place for people to find uh find yourself online perhaps or um find out more about adi as well i guess as well would be uh, would be good to ask yeah well a little old school there as well mate i'm not a social media user unless it's following snowboarding so uh an old-fashioned email works best for me uh i can be reached at uh, andrew gray 1008 at gmail.com would be more than happy to uh, engage in any type of communication. Perfect. And that, that sounds like you keep it simple in that space. Yes, <laughs> I find I need to. <laughs> well, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on, mate. It's been great to chat to you these last couple of weeks. And um, I wish you I wish you uh, good luck coming to the end of your season and um, hopefully we'll catch up soon, mate. Thanks, Andy. Really appreciate it. Take care. Big thanks to Andrew Gray for coming on today's show. And I'd also like to thank Matt Clark at I Measure You for the suggestion, but also introducing myself to Andrew. I've really enjoyed and learned a lot from having a couple of chats with today's guest, Andrew Gray, and hopefully we'll get him back on the podcast in the future, as I think there's plenty of interesting topics that we could discuss with him. I'm sure you'll agree with me on that one. We're really interested to hear you, the listeners, feedback for any episodes that we release, good, bad, or any other comments. Please follow us on Instagram at InformPerformance or on Twitter at InformPod. If you've got a second to share ideas, requests or feedback, then shoot us a message on one of those platforms so that we can provide you with the content that you need, but also that you enjoy. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Inform Performance podcast. Tune in next week for more performance and sports medicine insights with me, Andy McDonald.